So our story kind of picks up where we dropped off last week. Last week we remember that these men from the east, these foreigners, these Gentiles, these unclean people came searching and God moved heaven and earth in such a way that His Son would be, be glorified in, through the worshiping of these foreigners. And, and God was greatly glorified. The, the, the sky somehow moved in such a way that this star stopped above the Christ child and they worshipped him, gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So now we know what is happening after that fact. We, the nativity scene is officially ruined. It's no longer this nice, pretty, hallmark kind of commercial the wise men had come. They were told to go back another way because, because Herod wanted to know where this Christ, this, this coming king was going to be born. But they were warned in a dream by an angel, go back another way. Do not go back to Herod because he has other plans. So at the same time, Joseph received this dream in which God made it clear that he needed to take his family to Egypt because the king, Herod, made it clear that he wanted to kill Jesus. So in the middle of the night, Joseph packs up his wife, packs up his child, packs up his belongings, either gathers himself a camel, a donkey, or made his way out on foot with his wife and his child and their belongings for a 75 to 100 mile trip down to Egypt. You think your Christmas travels are going to be difficult? Imagine traveling on foot 75 to 100 miles with a wife, children, and belongings. In the meantime, Herod finds out that these wise men tricked him or ignored him, and it infuriated him. Just, just pushed him over to the ed edge, and he decided that because of that, he wanted to eradicate this coming king, this promised king that was found back in uh, the, the prophecy said in Micah chapter 2, that there was a king that, who was going to be coming. So he decided, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to eradicate the possibility of somebody usurping my authority and my rule, and I'm going to do this by killing all the boys in Bethlehem who are ages two years and younger. I'm going to have them killed. Scholars estimate during that time, Bethlehem was probably about a thousand residents, and they estimate also that there would probably be 10 to 20 families who would be deeply impacted by this genocidal maniac. All of a sudden, their sons are taken from them and slaughtered. You can imagine the impact on those families in that town, the weeping and the wailing and the shock that shook this entire town. It would define them forever. But thank God, time passes on. Herod dies, and God told Joseph that it was time to bring his family back to the land of Israel. But Herod's son, Archelaus, had taken over in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And so the Lord told him in another dream, don't go back to Bethlehem, but go back to Nazareth. And so Mary, Joseph, and Jesus traveled back to Nazareth, which was the place where Joseph was originally from, where he and Mary had lived before they came back, before they went to uh, Bethlehem for the census. So 
where in this do we see Advent? How is this even part of a, a Christmas story where we are anticipating a coming king, his, his, first, his first Advent or his, his last Advent? How, how does this even help us? So I, there are three times in this story Matthew does a beautiful thing. He does a flashback. He kind of shoots back. He, he says, all this took place to fulfill what was written by the prophet. And then he quotes the Old Testament three times. And in those three times, this is what I want to do for you this morning. I want to show you three reasons for Christmas rejoicing. Three reasons. Three reasons that literally go back 3,000 years. And understanding this Christmas story is dependent on understanding Old Testament stories that happened many, many years before that. So I want you to look with me at the three times where Matthew quotes the Old Testament. The three times where Matthew quotes the Old Testament. And let's look at the first one of Matthew 2, verse 15. Right after Joseph takes his family out of Egypt, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. So here's a quiz. Here's a quiz. Does anybody know where that quotation is from in the Old Testament? Go. Hosea 10, verse 11. Hosea 10, verse 11. No. You are so close. Oh, but Hosea 10, verse 12. So close. You got time, right? Exodus 4, verse 15. Oh, even farther. Matt? Hosea 11, 1. Matt, you, are, you must have studied this in college and memorized the entire book of Matt. You look at your study notes. So Matt cheated, but the rest of you, it, you need to learn how to use your Bible. If you look in there, you can see there's footnotes. So what book is from Hosea? And so that was our audience participation point. Be ready for the next one that is going to be coming up. So Hosea 11 verse 1 is where the prophet Hosea is recalling how God delivered his people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And you remember how he did this, right? We've, we've been through this before. He did this through miraculous plagues. It first started off with water turning to blood, and then there were frogs, there were gnats, there were flies, there was livestock was affected, there were boils, there was hail, there was locusts, there was darkness, and it was all setting the stage for the last and final ultimate plague of the death of the, the firstborn. So... So here's the story. The whole picture was in the 10th day of the month. God said to the Israelites, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go take a lamb, a one-year-old perfect lamb. No blemishes, no faults, no nothing whatsoever. And I want you to bring that beautiful spotless lamb into your home. Parents, you can imagine what this is going to do. You start naming it, right? This is the cutest little thing now brought. It's like a puppy found on your doorstep, and now it's brought into your home. Well, here's the deal. Four days later, they were to slaughter the lamb. They were to slaughter this lamb, and then not only that, they were to take the lamb's blood, and they were put, to put it over the doorstop or the doorpost. Imagine that. 
the drama that is building up to this. And at night, God would come that very night and He would rain down judgment on the firstborn and every firstborn in the household of Egypt was killed who did not have blood over the doorpost. He would spare the, His people, the, the Israelites, if there was blood over the doorpost to show that a payment was made. A payment of death has already been paid by a replacement. Something had taken their place. A lamb had been sacrificed instead of their children. What a story. There was a, there was a lamb. So going back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, we see this. There's a picture that is being painted here. In all this, God is making clear that He is the powerful deliverer in Egypt. But when we get to the story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, we are going to see Him going into Egypt. And we realize something bigger, bigger and greater and grander going on here other than just fleeing King Herod because Jesus is inaugurating a new exodus. He's inaugurating a new exodus. Don't, don't miss the intentionality of Matthew here by quoting Hosea 11. He is cluing us into the fact that Mary and Joseph and Jesus were not running away from King Herod. This is painting a picture. And don't miss the parallels here. What we see here is that God saves His people by bringing miraculous deliverance out of Egypt. He's bringing them out of Egypt. And these stories were, were told by God's people and they would be recounted again and again. Every year they would tell these stories to their children, to their children's children. Around this Passover meal, they are telling their stories of how God miraculously, mercifully saved them. And in that way, God's mercy in Exodus in delivering them from Egypt is setting the stage for the mercy of God in the New Testament. We see His mercy in the New Testament when God would save His people by bringing the Messianic Deliverer from Egypt. Their true and greater Deliverer, not Moses. Their true Deliverer is going to be coming from Egypt. In His coming out of Egypt, it is a picture of Jesus inaugurating a new and greater exodus for the people of God. All the people of God. And remember, just before this story, it was wise men, pagans, people from the East who were Gentiles, undeserving. They were not of the people of Israel. And all this is closely tied to, listen, this great Deliverer is coming to save all who will believe. Men, women, children, Gentiles, Jews. He would deliver, He would save His people from their sins. A new and greater deliverance coming from Egypt. A new and greater deliverance is coming from Egypt. You want to talk about Advent and what we're anticipating? A new and greater 
exodus is going to be happening by, by the king himself coming out of Egypt to deliver his people from their sins, deliver us from the wrath of God that is rightly coming our way. Our deliverer is coming. And that should be great news. So this leads to the second quotation from the prophet in the story. It happens right after Herod kills all the boy, infant boys in Bethlehem. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. Matthew writes, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, who? Jer- okay, that is, I'm going to give you, that's kind of a hint. You don't even have to look at the, the footnotes right here. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, where's this quote from? Obviously from Jeremiah Ware. Very good. Very good. Got that. So Jeremiah 31.15. You can look at the context here. And what is happening here, it's a prophecy that's talking about the day when God's people were taken into exile. They were taken into exile. I don't know if you know the story, but the Babylonians were coming. They were coming. They attacked Jerusalem. They destroyed. They decimate the city. They destroyed people's homes. And they would take the people to a place north of Jerusalem called Ramah. They would take all the people. Take them as captives to, to, to Ramah. And that was a place where the people of God were separated from one another. Separated from family, separated from friends, and taken into exile. Now imagine the scene when all of God's people were taken to Ramah and they were separated from one another. Literally separated. Family and friends, neighbors, separated. Imagine this moment being the last moment when you would actually be able to see your family. This is my last moment to see my son Isaac. My last chance to see my wife Laura. My last chance to see my daughter Grace. And in that moment, what is happening? I may never, ever see them again. Can you imagine the pain, the weeping, the tears, the emotions of that moment? Can you understand why the prophet is saying, there was weeping, loud, loud weeping and loud lamentation. It's not like, oh, I'll see you later. This is sad. Kind of like at the end of your Christmas gatherings. No, this is deep lamentation. They were about to be deported into different parts of Babylon. And they were going to be spread out, never to be seen again. And all of a sudden, in an instant, your family is ripped apart. Imagine the weeping. Imagine the lamentation. And that's the picture of Jeremiah 31. Mothers weeping for their children. Children weeping for their mothers and their fathers. And that's the picture that's described. But the whole beauty of it is in Jeremiah 31. There's a bigger picture going on in Jeremiah 31. Yes, there's a note of sadness, right? Of Rachel weeping and representing all the mothers and the fathers, the children, the brothers, the weeping and lamentation. But then right after Jeremiah 15 comes Jeremiah 16 and 17. So if you were a a good Jewish child at that point, 
a good scholar, you know the, the length and the breadth of Scripture. You go, but that's not it. That's not the whole story of the weeping and the lamentation, the gnashing of teeth, the, the deep emotion. No, Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17 says this. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work. There is hope for your future. There's hope for your future. And God gives these promises, them a promise right here in, in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's one of the clearest promises in all of the Old Testament. He is going to send them a new king to inaugurate a new covenant that will bring his people back to each other and reconcile them, not just with one another, but reconcile them with God himself. And so he says, weep no more. In the midst of your hurting, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your sorrow, there is hope. There's hope. So imagine that scene. And as you do, realize that Jesus, in his coming, is not just inaugurating a, a new exodus. Jesus is ending a mournful exile. He's ending it. This is the contrast here in, in Matthew chapter 2, and don't miss it. So on one hand, it is absolutely horrible news. Children all over Bethlehem have been killed with their, their parents and their mothers and their children. Everybody is weeping and they're mourning. There's great emotion going on in this time. So that's the horrible news of Matthew chapter 2. And at the exact same time, exact same time there is good news it's exactly what we see in jeremiah 31 good news in the midst of horrible this horrible picture so here's the good news of matthew chapter 2 amidst this difficulty in bethlehem there's hope in the midst of hurt i want some of you to hear this clearly there's hope in the midst of hurt. Let me say it one more time. There is hope in the midst of hurt. Say it. There is And this sounds, sometimes you might, even you coming, coming off your tongue, you're going, oh, Paul, that, that sounds really nice up here in my head. I mean, sure, I'm a good reformed person, and I understand that God is sovereign over all things. I know that he loves me, that, that he knows me deeply, but how in the heck does this help me give, have hope in the midst of this hurt? How, how does this intersect with my life when I'm dealing with the death of a loved one? You tell me, Paul. How does this help me deal with that? How, how does it help me when... When my marriage, when, where the love is found wanting and divorce is feeling like it's eminent. How, how, where is, is my deepest good and my, where, where are my desires for the, these deep and good things that I desire? They are good and healthy things. And it seems like God is not granting them or blessing us with this. How in those moments of hurt and pain, where is the hope? Where is the hope in the midst of my pain? Okay, for them, I get it. 
What about my pain? What about my hurt? How do I deal with what feels like a crashing wave over me day after day after day? Well, the reality is often when we talk about this word, word hope, we're, we're often expressing uncertainty, aren't we? And I, I, just, I just hope they win tonight. I hope that dad comes home on time. There's often uncertainty wrapped up in that, right? I, I hope I get that job. I hope that she comes through for me. I hope that my husband does this. I hope that my kids will be this or that and get this. But that is not necessarily the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope is not just a, a desire for something good, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation a confident expectation, and a confident desire for something good in the future. And it is wrapped up in the character and the promises of God. That's what true biblical hope is. And so what does Matthew do for us here? He, he sets a pattern for us in doing what? He sets a pattern in looking back at God's actions and his promises he looks backward right and in doing that he he does that so that he can look at his current reality right where he's at in the midst of this hurt and this lamentation this weeping he can look at the back things that have happened the promises of god the character of god look at his current reality and all of that is ultimately informed by a future hope and assuredness in God's promises. Yes, our current pain and sorrow is very real. Very real. The reality is it sucks and we really want to get out of this pain. We want to get out of this sorrow. But that does not say that God is not near. It doesn't say that He does not hear us and that He will not save us. No, in fact, as we see something, we see something quite other about God which should bolster our faith and our hope in the, and have confidence in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of death. We have a certain confidence and hope in our future. Friedrich Biekner, in his book called A Hungry dark, the hungering dark, he says this. Throw it up for me, Donna. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what length he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. Now think about this. In the midst of your hope, your pain, your sorrow, your weeping your depression about your current circumstances man you can say but god has gone to absolutely crazy ludicrous lengths to meet me right where i'm at he has given up his his throne of glory put on flesh and has dwelt among us to save me to save you from the wrath of god and to give me a hope and this should give us hope in the midst 
pain and hurt and sorrow. This is a reason for rejoicing. This is a reason why when we sing, we should sing loudly. Or as my mother-in-law says, lustily, not lustfully, lustily. You know, from, you know it's like it's bellowing out because we understand in the midst of my hurt, I can sing and I can sing with confidence. And when we do find ourselves in these moments of pain and sorrow, we can, we can, be, we can go back to the psalmist and say, why am I so downcast on my soul? Why are you so uh, upset? Why is there turmoil within me? And then we can preach the next line that happens in Psalm 42. We can say, hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall praise Him. My salvation and my God. Hope in Him. Why am I downcast? Why, why, am I so, why is there such turmoil in my heart? Hope, Paul, hope in God in this moment. The world is going to fall apart. My spouse is going to fall apart. My children are going to fall apart. My workplace, my finances, all these things are going to fall apart, right? Paul? Hope in God. And tell yourself, I will praise Him again. I will, right now, I will praise Him again in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my pain. Why? Because I, I, can, I can look at Jeremiah 31, 16, and 17 and say, there's a hope for my future. This isn't a name it, claim it, saying, man, Jesus, I have given you this offering, therefore I have trust in this kind of blessing. No, it's saying, I've got a greater promise that is coming. Someone has reserved a place for me where there is no more sorrow. There is no more tears. There is no more suffering. And the reality in my current pain, He is with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will. Why? Because you are with me. I have nothing to fear. So there's something both scary and reassuring about this, the fact that God has moved heaven and earth to come and dwell amongst us, right? It's almost scary, and at the same time, it is deeply reassuring that God is willing to do these things. If God has come for us, I tell you, He will provide for you in the midst of your pain. But that's not it. It's not just because there, there's... There's hope in the midst of pain. Hear this one. There is life in the midst of death. There's life in the midst of death. Because all this happens as a result of Jesus, Christ, the King's coming. There is life in the midst of death. There is. Where is that hope? Where is that life? Matthew says, listen, a new king has been born and the nations are already coming to worship him. The king has been promised. The king who will conquer death. The king who will heal your hurts. A new king will reconcile us to God and to each other. A new king has been born and a new covenant is beginning. There is life for you. Not just a temporal kind of life, but an eternal life. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31 about a hope in the midst of the hurt. The same chapter where, 
We are promised that God will one day enter into a new covenant with us through Christ Jesus, through His blood, and through Jesus Christ, we will all know and we will all worship God. Jesus ends the mournful exile and He brings hope in the midst of of hurt and life in the midst of death. So in the midst of... I want you to think about this when it comes to evangelism. God did not come just to save you. And you should feel safe and secure because now you got a little bit of fire insurance. You don't have to worry about burning in hell later on, which is, might be true. But now this informs, if He has come to give us life in the midst of death, we now go out as those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. We go out as His ambassadors and saying, listen, there is life in the midst of this reeking world where pain and sorrow is evident, there's life. And let me tell you about the King who brings you life. It's found in Christ. And that should inform us in such a way that we have a tremendous amount of confidence. He came in spite of us. And he accomplished all that in spite of us. How does that inform how we go out to our friends, our neighbors, our schoolmates, and tell them, let me tell you about Jesus. I'm going to screw this whole presentation up. I'm not gonna, I, I don't have the best words here. In fact, I hate public speaking, and I'd much rather just kind of hide behind a desk. But let me tell you about something, about this Jesus who comes to gave, give you life. He came to give me life, and I have it abundantly. My life's really hurt, and I'm in a whole heck of a lot of pain right now. But let me tell you about the one who is sustaining and caring me and loving me and redeemed me. He's doing this in me in little ways and in big ways. You need to respond to this Christ. It informs the way that we do evangelism. So there's hope in the midst of hurt, real pain and real sadness, but there's real hope and real joy because there's life in the midst, in the midst of death, and Jesus ends this mournful exile for us. So he inaugurates this new exodus, right? That's the first point. He, he, he ends this mournful exile. And finally, the third quotation, the third reason we celebrate Jesus is this. Jesus loves his fiercest enemies. He does. So here's the third quotation. It's in, in uh, verse 23, and we'll see how good you are with this one. It says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Where is he quoting from? Oh, Matt, you are a cheater. He's right. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's, he's not quoting anywhere specifically here. This is not a verse found in the Old Testament where where it says, and he shall be called a Nazarene. In fact, the Old Testament, hardly do we see anything about about Nazareth even being mentioned as a place. So what is Matthew doing here? He seems to be quoting something that's not really there. Well, if you think about it, 
Nazareth is known as a place that was lowly and despised. Remember in John chapter 1 when Nathanael hears that Jesus has come from Nazareth? And what does Nathanael say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Really? He's come, what? Nazareth? Of all towns? It's kind of like saying, can anything good come from Bourbon A? Right? I heard that. <laughs> so Nazareth was a place that was, shall we just say, kind of at, at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. It, it was like even the bottom of the bottom. There's not even a rung for, for Nazareth. So despised, ridiculed, reviled, and this is what we see all over in the prophets of the Old Testament. Maybe most famously found in Isaiah 53, where Isaiah says of Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, and we did what? We esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Which really brings the end of Matthew chapter 2 to quite a conclusion, if we're really looking at this. When you re realize that the king of the universe, who comes to save sinners from the start here in Matthew chapter 2, is being defiled, ridiculed by the very sinners that he came to save, it's quite a picture. Whether it's King Herod, the chief priests, or the scribes, all of these different people in Matthew chapter 2 are setting themselves up against Jesus as his enemies. And the reality is, whether you like this or not, the reality is you and I are exactly the same. Now think with me about this for a minute. Maybe you go to a movie, and in every movie there's a protagonist and uh, antagonist. Very good. Some of you listened in high school English. Very good. So there's a protagonist, the good guy and the, the bad guy in every story, in every situation. And often what do we like to do when we're reading the story? We like our, to be able to identify with the good guy, right? There's something inside us that just says, I want to be like him. I want to be, oh, I hope he just nails, decimates that guy, just destroys him. And the same thing is found in the Bible, right? There's always in the stories of the Bible and Scripture, there's a, a protagonist and an antagonist. And you see a story with a good guy and a bad guy, and you think, well, I'm just like that good guy, right? Well, let me list some bad guys, and you tell me who the good guy is in the story. Bad guy, Goliath. Very good, good. Thank you for the participation. So, so David is the bad guy. The good guy, right? So I, you, you say, I want to be like David. I want to be that, you know, only a boy named David, and you got the little sling, and you're going to just nail that guy in the forehead, and you're going to take out Goliath. I want to be like David. He was, he was breathing out these murderous threats, these terrible curses against God's people and, and God himself, and you want to be like David. And you identify and say, I could be like him. Or how about this bad guy? Cain. Who's the other? Abel. Abel, very good. Or how about this? 
Pharaoh. Very good. Thank you, James. So you got, you got these two competing kind of voices going on, right? Pharaoh, let my people go. No, in fact, they've got to work harder. They've got to work harder. Or how about a bad girl? Delilah. Yeah, but Samson really wasn't so good. He was really kind of... He kind of, there was a redeeming moment at the end, but he was really a dog, right? But we want to identify ourselves with these good characters. The reality is in our minds and in our hearts, we have rejected Christ. So when it, we come to Matthew chapter 2, we've got good guys and we've got bad guys. We, we've got these good guys, the wise men. We've got Mary, we've got Joseph, and we've got the bad guys. We've got Herod, and we've got the chief priests. We've got the scribes, and we've got the religious leaders of the day. So let me ask you the question. If you could be really honest with yourself, who do you want to identify with? You want to identify with hearing the voice of God and having an angel in the dream and just saying, I will take my wife and child and go off to Egypt. I want to be just like that. I, I want to be a sympathizer to Christ, right? That's, that's exactly where my heart is. I want to be like Joseph. I want to be like Mary and having the silent night, holy night, all is calm, and all is bright. Round yon virgin, that's me, mother and child. And I just have this moment where I want to be like that. I want to identify with it. But if we are honest with ourselves, we will realize that at the core, the very core of who we are, we identify most with King Herod. We are afraid of a king who will invade our personal kingdoms. We are afraid of a king who is going to invade our desires, my plans, my priorities, and my life. I am scared to death that he is going to come and take over. And I will do anything to control my kingdom to the point of building up walls and decimating whatever I can to keep control of my world. And this is the reality that Scripture even teaches us. That at the core of who we are, we all resist Jesus. We are all enemies of God. And the beauty of Matthew chapter 2 is that he is reminding us that yes, in our minds and in our hearts, we have all rejected him. This is not just a story about a bunch of people 2,000 years ago or even a bunch of people 3,000 years ago in Ramah. This is a story about us. Because we find ourselves in slavery to sin, don't we? If you're honest today, many of you, if you can go through your catalog of your, your weekly activities, you find yourselves in slavery to sin. Be honest. You are slaves to sin still. You are in need of an exodus. And you need deliverance. We're too familiar with pains and hurts in this, this current world that we live in, this, this sinful world. We know suffering in our lives, right? We see suffering all around us in our world. And we know that in our sin, in our sin, we are enemies with our Savior. But He has come, friends. He has come to inaugurate a new exodus for us. To deliver us from our sins. He has come to end our mournful exile. 
and in our lives to bring hope in the midst of our pain and our hurt and to bring life in the midst of death. He has come to save us. That king, that baby child who is now reigning has come to save us. But the reality is in our minds and our hearts we've rejected him with our sinful rebellion. Our desires to keep our own, be kings of our own little fiefdom. And though we have rejected him, here's the good news. Even though we have rejected him, by his grace and for his glory, he has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. And all of that, all of that gives us great reason to rejoice, doesn't it? It gives us great reason to rejoice this last Sunday of, of Christmas, before Christmas. It helps us to, to realign that last minute realignment before, okay, before Christmas Eve, before Christmas Day, before all the chaos, and even after this Christmas season. It helps us to realign our hearts and our minds to remember that, that Jesus Christ has given His body and He has shed His blood for people who despise Him and reject Him. Don't fool yourself. If you were there in that moment, friends, you would not have been welcoming Him in your heart. We turn from Him, and yet His mercy overwhelms your rebellion. Thank God. His mercy overwhelms your rebellion. And He delivers us from our sins. And He brings us hope in the midst of hurt. And, and He gives us life in the midst of death. And He redeems us for all of eternity. And that is a reason why we can rejoice before Christmas Day. We don't have to wait for Christmas. We can rejoice this morning knowing this about our Savior. This is why we preach from all of Scripture. Amen? Let's pray.